Okay, so tonight we're continuing cruising and we're in the book of Philippians tonight. And that is dead as a hammer and I don't know why. Hmm. Okay, so um, anyway, we're in Philippians and we'll be um, going through this chapter, four chapter book. And um, the book of Philippians has a, has some doctrinal issues in there, but... It's, uh, it's, it's a lighter book in the sense that it's, um, Paul doesn't have to give any sterling rebukes as he did in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, mostly 1 Corinthians, uh, or in Romans. And um, we saw even uh, a little bit in Galatians, of course, we saw where he had to correct some. But there's, there's a little bit of doctrinal um, uh, mixed in here, but most of it is some practical and personal information from Paul. Um, it's, it's not as long, so there's not quite as much personal information, thank you, as there is in um, 2 Corinthians and Galatians. Um, it's just four chapters. So we see, as you read through the book, the theme, um, well, we said um, when we got to Paul's letters that we're looking at uh, what he says in, in them about being in Christ. And in this book, uh, Philippians, in Christ satisfied. There are four chapters, and the key verse is verse 11 if you, of chapter 1, if you'll go there with me. Uh, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. So um, this church was a church that had a lot of good things going for it. And he mentioned that they um, filled with the fruits of righteousness. This church was uh, apparently very missionary-minded, as we'll see when we get into chapter 4. They had a lot of really good things going on. Um, there was just one or two things Paul had to write about, uh, one, one small little rebuke with two people having a, a disagreement in chapter 4. But anyway, um, in these four chapters, six times you see the word joy, and ten times you see the word rejoice. So it is a book about joy uh, and about rejoicing found throughout the book. Um, so as we, as we study it, you'll see those, uh, see those in several of the passages that we read tonight. Again, um, same as the timeline as we looked at with uh, Paul's uh, letter to, um, the Col- uh, excuse me, to the Ephesians. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll be in Colossians and we'll see the same timeline. Um, the time of Acts, the events of the book of Acts are about 33 to 65 A.D., roughly. <clears throat> a little over 30 years, almost the length of Jesus' ministry. Uh, the book of Acts, uh, record, I mean, Jesus' life, excuse me, the book of Acts records uh, ministry of the apostles. So almost uh, his, his life was 33 years, his ministry three and a half, but the uh, time of the Acts, roughly about 32 years or so, depending on um, when, when it uh, ended. Some say 65, some say as late as 67 or 8. So Paul's in prison in Rome about 62 AD, about roughly anywhere from four to six years before he died or, or was martyred uh, later on. And in that time, he wrote the books of Ephesians. We saw last week, tonight, Philippians, the Lord willing, next week, Colossians. And then a little one-chapter book of Philemon. We'll probably combine it uh, with, another, with other books in the future because it has only one chapter to it. Uh, but they were all written roughly within the same time while he was in prison there in Rome for preaching the gospel. And then, of course, I mentioned he's martyred about 66 to 68 A.D., somewhere in there. <clears throat> so first off, we're going to take the scenic route and look a little bit at the location. So way down here is Jerusalem. Uh, and remember, uh, they had, um, in the book of Acts, roughly about the time this was, or right after the time this was written probably, um, yeah, pretty much right after the time this was written. Remember, the church began to move west, and to do that, they had to go north first. And Antioch in Syria was now the headquarters when we studied the Acts and talked about it. The church moved their headquarters, so to speak, from Jerusalem to Antioch. Reason being is because the gospel is moving east to west, and also because at this point, and by the time he writes the Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, um, the, uh, the church is becoming more and more Gentile converts rather than Jewish converts. And so the, um, the headquarters moves to uh, Antioch in Syria, way up here north. And so uh, Paul makes his way. Last week we looked at the uh, book of Galatians, and we talked about how that's not really one town or one city or whatever. It's a region uh, of, of Galatia. And then tonight, or last night, excuse me, last week, we looked at um, Ephesians. And so you see, as he writes to Philippi, 
uh, the, the Christians there at Philippi, we're going to look tonight and see in the book of Acts where he actually had, had been there and then later on writes to them. So um, that's a, a map with as he travels. And then as we get on, well, we already looked at uh, Corinth and talked about uh, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. But then in a few weeks to come, we'll see the book of uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So <clears throat> a little bit closer to a uh, little bit um, blowing up the map a little bit for that region uh, there's Ephesus we talked about. Here's Philippi up here. This is a little bit blurrier of a, so it's not your eyes, <laughs> a little bit blurrier of a map. So, but anyway, um, Philippi is right there, um, and that's where they're located, almost due north of Athens, Greece. It looks like it's just completely due north of Greece there, Athens, Greece. So, um, let's go to the book of Acts, and let's see how um, the, these believers at Philippi, let's, let's look a little bit about their background. We're not going to read the whole chapter for time's sake, but when you go back to chapter 16 of Acts, we'll read a little bit of it. Actually, chapter 16, starting verse 12, we'll pick up there and just read a few verses. When you read down to the end of the book of Acts, you see several events that happen when Paul is in Philippi. And this is where there are converts and the church begins there at some point in Philippi. And I believe it was uh, largely because of uh, at least two events. Um, the first one we see on, on, the, um, on the screen there, uh, uh, the first section, verse 14 and 15, where a lady named Lydia and her family are converted. We're all going to read that. And then um, he casts out um, unclean spirit out of a young lady in chapter 16, verse 16 to 18. And then in chapter 16, verse 19 to 24, they're jailed. Paul and Silas are jailed um, because they had, we'll, we'll see that in a moment, because uh, after they had um, cast this evil spirit out, we'll look at that in a moment briefly. And then as a result, the jailer and, the fam and his family are all converted um, because Paul and Silas, the Bible says they sang praises at midnight. And remember the earthquake happened and the jailer comes in. And he knows his life's in jeopardy. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Uh, one of the most important questions in the whole book of Acts. So the um, city there of Philippi, I believe these events lead to the, the founding of that church and, and as they begin to grow. Pick up at verse 12. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief part of Macedonia. So at this point, they're on their second missionary journey, um, which started in chapter 15 about verse 36. And so they're on their second missionary journey. And it says in verse 12, from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part, part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. Then he gives us a description of some of the things that happens there. Verse um, says on the Sabbath, they went out of the city by a riverside. And apparently there were those that had gathered regularly for prayer and they sat down there and they, um, they spake to the women which were sitting there uh, at the time, apparently gathered for prayer. Verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which are spoken of by Paul. And then because she believed on the Lord, it says in verse 15 that she was baptized. In fact, it says, and her household. So apparently Paul went, uh, Paul and Silas went to visit in her home and led whoever else was in the household to the Lord. It doesn't mention any names. It doesn't mention who all was in there, but uh, apparently there were others there, quite possibly a husband if he was uh, still living, and, and children or whoever was in her house there. And it says that um, they believed and they were uh, baptized. Then again, as I mentioned just briefly, verse 16 to 18, there's a young lady that has a unclean spirit, and Paul cast that unclean spirit out of her in verse 18. And then because of that, there were actually those in the city that were making money off of this girl who was getting money by her, basically telling the future. And so for people. And so um, something like, you know, astrology or, or palm reading or something uh, like we would uh, think of in our day, uh, something probably they were doing very similar or probably the same thing. And he cast that unclean spirit out. Well, she was making money apparently for some people and they didn't like that. Uh, and so the way they, they disguise it around something almost um, religious, it says in verse um, 20, and brought them to the magistrates, Paul and Silas, 
after they saw their, verse 19 says, their hope of their gains were gone. They were cutting into their pocketbook. Uh, Paul and Silas was cutting their pocketbook, what they did. Uh, brought them to the magistrates, verse 20, saying, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Now, it may be that their customs were, that was fine. And they were obviously, it was, that's how they were making their money. But Paul didn't, didn't care about their customs or their laws. He knew this young lady was in need of help. She had those unclean, the unclean spirit in her and he cast that out of her. And so because of that, they were cutting into their funds. Um, they ended up putting them in prison, verse 23 and 24. And then Paul and Silas uh, are there in prison. And as you know, it's in verse 25, uh, as you've, you've heard this priest and taught that, um, the prisoners heard him as they were singing praises, and then there was the earthquake, and then the, the jailer comes in verse number um, 29, then called uh, for a light and sprang in, the jailer, and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. So he, um, he believed on the Lord, and uh, his household that were saved also apparently uh, Paul and Silas had the opportunity to talk about uh, talk to those that um, also in this man's household. So you had Lydia in her household, and then you have this this jailer in his household, and then it says um, as you read on down through there that um, verse thirty four he brought them to his house, sat at meat before him, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. So they led them all to Christ. So these were the early days, the start of that um, of the church there at Philippi, uh, and so. Uh, Paul writes to them in his letter after the fact these things had happened later on in the book of Acts. Here is just a brief chapter by chapter outline of the th- pretty much the theme of each chapter uh, of the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, we see how Christ is our life, and uh, we'll look at some verses about each of, these la- uh, each of these chapters in a little bit, break them down a little more. Number 2, how Christ is our pattern, and cha- uh, chapter 3, uh, number two is also chapter two. Chapter three is Christ our righteousness. And then number four, chapter four is Christ our sufficiency. And uh, we'll, we'll break that down a little bit as we go through this. Chapter one, verse one begins, uh, begins with, um, actually, I think I went past that on there, didn't I? Yeah, I did. I'm going to have to come back to that because I went too far on that, didn't I? No, I didn't. Chapter 1, verse 1. I think I, I think I got the slides backwards. Paul and Timotheus, that of course is Timothy. Timothy is um, a protege. He's a, um, Paul's pretty much his mentor. And uh, he's learning from Paul. And I, um, didn't, I forgot to mention it last week, but at one point, uh, according to what we know from church history, uh, Timothy was a pastor actually at Ephesus for a while. Um, and we'll come to that actually when we get into the study of 1 Timothy. So Paul and Timotheus are another, you know, so long for Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. So saints, of course, being another name for believers. Uh, we may not always act like saints, but as far as God, uh, when he sees us in Christ, we're, God calls us saints. We are believers, and that's another title. So almost every letter when Paul writes to them, um, uh, to these churches, he uses that, for that, that word saint in addressing them. Then he says the uh, bishops and deacons there in verse number one. And so I'll, I'll go back to that other slide in a moment when we get to it. But anyway, bishop is another name for pastor. First Timothy 3.1, uh, Paul says to Timothy, um, uh, if any man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. It's another name for pastor. Uh, and the word bishop means an overseer. Actually, that word bishop, um, the, um, the Greek word that's, that's used for that is a, a same word for, it's the same word that's used for the word episcopal, like the Episcopal Church. It's a word episkopos. I don't know a lot of Greek, but I, I just, I'm just throwing this in there just to say for, um, for definition's sake that it means an overseer. So as we know from Scripture and other places, that's the job of a pastor to oversee the spiritual needs of a church and so he's in, he was um, uh, he mentions uh, the bishops, which are overseers. Also, another name for pastor is also elder. Now, when you're reading in the New Testament, you see that word elder, especially when you get to Paul's letters. 
It's going to mean one of two things. And again, as you define words in Scripture, you always look in the context. Who's he writing about? Who's he writing to? There are some places where Paul writes, and he's talking about older people. It's for older gentlemen, older ladies, elder that way. He uses the word elder that way. Uh, older would be anything over 90, right? Okay, so elder that way. But an elder in the New Testament, as far as the structure of the local body of Christ, is also it's another name for a pastor. Um, there's some, some churches, Bible churches even, there's some churches, even Baptist churches, that have what they call uh, elder board or elder rule. I don't have any argument with that. It is a biblical term. Um, that's a form of church government that people choose to do. And if they do, that's, that's fine. Um, it is a biblical thing. Uh, but anyway, without going into a lot of other stuff about it, that's, that's where it comes from is, this word, is that word elder is also found as meaning a, 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 a pastor. So um, look at a, let's see, in fact, look at a reference, if you will, over in uh, Acts for just a moment. We were in Acts a moment ago. Acts chapter 20. Acts 20 and verse 17. Paul is about to leave this particular region where he was. Um, he um, is, is uh, on his journey and, and heading, I believe this is where he's getting ready to head to Rome, if I remember right here, without having to back up too far. But anyway, before he leaves and departs, he calls for um, elders from Ephesus, um, he goes there actually and calls for elders there of the church. It says there at Ephesus, 2017 of Acts. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And so as you read on down through there, he begins to tell them, um, you know that from day one I've been with you, I've served the Lord with you, uh, even, you know, even shedding tears together. Um, and some of the persecution he went through, verse 19, and then how in verse 21, he testified both to Jews and Greeks about the Lord Jesus. And he said he's going to Jerusalem, verse 22. Look down at verse number 28. Take heed, therefore, he's talking to these elders. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock. So as he's talking to them as elders, you see also, even the word bishop is not there, you see that truth of being an overseer. Take heed to the flock. So a pastor looks out over the spiritual needs of his flock. He's supposed to. That's why they're called shepherds looking out for needs. So oversee, keep that in mind. Over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Like we said, that word bishop means overseer. So elder and bishop is used interchangeably. Uh, overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. So um, again, we see those two words together. So he, he addresses, when he starts out in Philippians, the pastors, he uses the word bishops, and deacons. So um, it's quite likely that there was probably more than one assembly where people met uh, to worship together. And there may be, you know, probably in every assembly, assembly there was at least one bishop. And then, of course, uh, deacons. Let me back that up. A deacon is uh, found in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 and 13. It talks about the um, qualifications of a deacon, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 to 13. And probably those in Acts chapter 6 were, um, were deacons and not used by that name. Go back with me to Acts for still around Acts 20, back up to chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. So the need for deacons arose because there were physical needs going on in the early church. And at this time, Paul wasn't even converted yet. So at this time, the apostles um, and some, some others that were, they were called, they're called uh, some of them were called, actually called prophets, they were, um, they were the ones who, who taught and preached the word and, you know, met with people for prayer. They met together with wor in worship. So look at 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians, the Greeks, against the Hebrews, the Jews, because the widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So there's a daily ministry to those uh, widows that were in need of physical need, maybe food. Uh, probably some of them were. I mean, they were out husband, without husbands, so there might have been a need for food and other um, help for them. Then it says, verse 2, Then the twelve, that would be the uh, apostles, called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, 
it is not reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Now, what they're saying is they're not saying this is beneath us. What they're saying is, is we don't have time to do all of this. So a need arose, and it had to be met. Verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. He uses the word business there because it's, you know, it's something that's uh, a day-to-day need. It's not like you know, they set up a store type business, but it's business in the sense of there are needs to be met. Verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And with the saying, please the whole multitude that chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. That is, he was a believer that got saved in Antioch. That's way before, that's why they were still in Jerusalem. So he had apparently come down to Jerusalem from Antioch. And then it says they, uh, the apostles laid hands on them, and then the word of God increased. Verse 7, the number of the disciples multiplied. Because, you know, God's work was going on, and those who were able to do hands-on work um, God was using them. Later on, Paul writes and talks about those with the gift of serving. Obviously, these men were gifted in that way. So uh, a deacon, the word deacon actually is the same word for servant. It's the same word. So anyway, he addresses them as he writes them. So there, there's no other place, no other church that Paul writes to when he begins to, to address them. There's no other church where he uh, greets the pastors and deacons like that. Um, not that it isn't for all of them. It's just he, he does include their, their title there. Chapter 1, verse 12. We're moving on a little bit. We're, not, we're trying to move on a few verses here. Not, we're not going to hit everything, but we will hit some highlights as we've been doing in our other books. Chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, Paul says, But, would you understand, but I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather than the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, and later on, he'll mention some of the things he went through, but for, the, for time's sake, verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in the palace and in all other places. The palace, of course, meaning Caesar's household, the emperor. Um, but he says these things happen. So the bonds he's talking about is being imprisoned. He, again, he, this is one of his prison epistles. He writes it from jail, from being imprisoned for the cause of the gospel. Verse 14. Many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's persecution motivated others. It motivated other believers to be strong. Um, you know, they, they, rather than running them away or get, making them cower and be scared, um, they, got, they were stronger. Um, you know, it's, it's not that way with, with cults. If they get run off from something, they're probably not going to be strengthened. Well, Christians, that's the way the church grew. That's the way things grew. And we'll see another reference to that a little later in Paul's letter here. But over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and verse 2, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being also yourselves in the body, in the body of Christ together. Again, we think of where Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if one member suffer. All members suffer with it. And so we see how his, the persecution and suffering he went through empowered others to preach the gospel and to be strong and courageous. Uh, we'll come back to that a little bit later again, another place. Chapter 1, verse 21. This should be the conviction every, every believer has. And it's a short verse. It's one easy to, you may have already memorized it at some point. If not, you memorize it just a minute or two. For to me, Paul says... For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, and then in the next couple of verses, he talks about, I'm in a straight between two. I'm between two very good things. I could depart and be with Christ, which is far better, or I can stay here. While I'm here, I'll help you grow. I help. I continue to get, to get the gospel out when I can. I write these letters from jail to the churches. I'm able to... to um, disciple others. And so he says, as long as I'm here, either way, whether in death or life, uh, God has me here. And so he says, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That should be the personal conviction of every Christian. Uh, Lord, if you keep me here, I know you have a purpose for me here. I know there's something for me to do. But if you call me home, I know that that's better because I'm going to be with you uh, for eternity and with all my loved ones who know you. So uh, let's look at now, we're going we're gonna to come back to some other things in a moment, but there are four key examples 
found in the book of Philippians, and they're found in chapters 2 and 3. Four people, of course, the first one being Jesus, and um, not only in importance, but in order. So chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, we see the example of Jesus. Um, Paul says, uh, just skipping a couple of verses for time's sake, be of one accord, one mind, verse 2, let each esteem other better than themselves. Um, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We'll come back to that, actually, too. Verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So, of course, Jesus is our Savior. Absolutely. We, we, glory, you know, we glory in that. We glory in Him because of that. But Paul writes in the context here that Jesus is the ultimate um, example to us of being a servant, of what a, what a servant is all about. He left heaven. He left everything that was there. I uh, mentioned that a little bit Sunday morning. He left everything there in heaven. All His glory um, left, left um, from the presence of God the Father and came to earth and was born as a baby. We celebrate this time of year. And he showed the um, greatest example of servanthood, where he took upon himself the likeness of men. He took upon a human body. And then it says he was obedient, verse 8, even to the to death, the death of the cross. So we see his example of servanthood. Then also, um, well, kind of a sidetrack here, but chapter 2, verse 2 to 5, a servant heart, begins with a servant mind, or you make it plural, a servant's heart with a servant's mind. But I think I didn't put the S's there because I would run out of space. So a servant heart begins with a servant mind. Look at some of the, um, the aspects of that. Verse 2, be like-minded, having the same love, of one accord, of one mind, like-minded, he says in verse 2. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Uh, lowliness of mind, that would be another phrase that means humility, being humble. Verse number uh, 3 also, he uses the word other, uh, where he says, uh, esteem, esteem other better than themselves. Then verse 4, look not every man to his own things, but every man also to the things of others. So you see other and others found in there more than once, and then you see lowliness of mind, being like-minded. So a servant's heart begins with a servant's mind seeing and, and um, looking at others in the body of Christ with that, with that um, mindset of being a servant. Um, totally opposite of the world. The world, uh, world's idea is climb the ladder, you know, and whoever you have to climb on to get up there. Jesus said, he'd be the greatest among you, let him be servant of all. And so uh, Jesus is the ultimate best ever example of what it means to be a servant. Um, and then while we're still here looking at, at uh, him and his servanthood, we see uh, from verse 5 to 11 also how uh, he, he is God in human flesh. We talked a little bit about, and we will this Sunday again, God in human flesh. Uh, we see his special birth, verse 6, in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So he was, uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16 says that he is God manifest in the flesh. And so... He was born as a baby like everyone's born as a baby, but he, his conception, of course, was of the Holy Ghost. And then, of course, he was sinless. He, wasn't, um, he never sinned. And that leads to the next one, verse 7, his sinless life. Um, made himself of no reputation. Um, was made in the likeness of men. And he, had a sin, he was a sinless life as a man, as a child and a man, because he was indeed God in the flesh. And then verse 8, his substitutionary death. We looked at it, read that a moment ago, that he humbled himself to the death of the cross. And then his resurrection, verse 9. Wherefore God also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. He was highly exalted when he rose from the dead. And so you see uh, his life, his birth actually, his life, death, burial, and resurrection all found in those verses the ultimate act of servanthood, of being a servant. Second one is, um, yeah, second one is Timothy, actually. Chapter 2, verse 19 to 24, uh, Paul mentions Timothy. And the, the book begins with Paul and Timothy as he greets uh, the believers there at Philippi. So apparently while he was in jail, Timothy got to see him or be with him for a period of time. 
And it says in verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy, uh, Timotheus or Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. In other words, Paul, there he was in prison. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about the believers there at Philippi. He said, I'm sending Timothy to check and see how things are going with you. And when he comes back, he can give me a report. And he said, I'll be relieved to know that things are going well. And they probably were because this church had a lot of things good going on for him. Look at verse 20. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Timothy was quite a young man. As I mentioned, he was a, a pastor also, um, and he was, you know, Paul was his mentor. He learned a great deal from him, and he said, there's no one else who would do this, who would come visit you and see you because they care about you and your spiritual needs and other needs, obviously, we'll see in chapter 4. And he said, um, uh, I can trust Timothy. He'll do that. He has that kind of a servant's heart. He cares enough about you that he wants to come and check on you. Then there's a man with a long name that's hard to pronounce a little bit, but he's one of those that, that kind of go in the um, category where I talk about a lot of times those were the strangest names that seem like did some of the greatest things. Uh, his name is Epaphroditus, and uh, we'll go ahead and read this whole 25 to 30 about him real quick and see what the Scripture says about him. He also uh, is an example of servanthood. You see the word ministered, and of course, minister and servant are really the same word. Jesus said, he'd be greatest among you, let him be your minister. And then he says in another place, let him be servant of all. So those words are interchangeable. So 2.25, yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. So the difference between Epaphroditus and Timothy, Timothy was going to go check on them and come back and let Paul know how they were doing. Epaphroditus was going and, and that's where he was going to belong. That's where he was going to be. Verse 26, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because um, that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, he says, look, God was good, not only to him that he's feeling better, but he's good because the fact he's, you know, even when he was sick, he was still serving. He was still helping me and, and meeting um, needs that I had, Paul says, and, he, and he's there to help you. Look what Epaphroditus was so concerned about, though, in verse 26. He was full of heaviness because he heard that he was sick. He didn't want them to think that, you know, he slowed down or anything just because he wasn't doing well, wasn't feeling well. He wanted to keep on keeping on and, um, and, and to, um, to not stop. Pick up verse 28. We read down to verse 27. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when you see him again, you may rejoice, that I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ, he was not unto death, not regarding his own life, to supply your lack of service toward me. In other words, here he is helping you and making up for what you're unable to do. They were geographically apart from Paul. They weren't able to see him or talk to him daily. You know, no internet, no phone, nothing like that. So Paul was sending him there um, to permanently be there at Philippi. Uh, it says there that receive him in the Lord, verse 29, he's coming to, to live among you. So Epaphroditus, another great example of a servant. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 17, rather lengthy. And we see Paul as an example of a servant. And in doing so, we see his example of how he pressed forward and um, did not let his past, um, even though I'm sure he thought about it from time to time, he didn't let it come back and haunt him. For time's sake, we're not going to read the whole section, but pick up verse um, 4. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man think he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Then he gives a, a list of the things uh, before Christ. Circumcised the eighth day, according to the law, of course, they was to be, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That simply means that he lived by the letter of the law. As touching the law of Pharisee, he explains it that, that way by saying a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he, he observed all the feasts and probably fasts and all their celebrations as touching the law of Pharisee. Uh, and so, you know, when he went to um, 
uh, when, he, when he began persecuting the church, he had all that background as far as the Old Testament knowledge and everything. Verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul describes you know, what his life was like before Christ, but then verse 7, but the things which were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. So he's an example to us of a servant uh, and these other guys, well, especially Timothy and Epaphroditus, you know, very hands-on. But he's an example of a servant in that he continued to press forward, to press on, to let those things of his past before he was saved, let them go, not to, to count them anymore because he knew they were all in the blood of Christ. Skip down to verse um, 13. But this one thing, I, no, actually look at verse uh, 12. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after that I may apprehend for that which also I apprehend, I'm apprehended of Christ Jesus. In other words, he's not saying, you watch me. I'm going to sit here. You watch me. Look at these next few verses. He says, come on, let's go together. Let's go forward together. Verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, these things, I'm leaving them behind. I just want to keep going forward. I want to keep going towards the mark. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And so he says, I'm looking for that goal. I'm, I'm, I'm on the race or in the race, and I'm heading for the goal line. Come with me. Let's run this race together. Let's get to the finish line. Let's press and move forward together. So he's an example of a servant in the sense of keeping on and, and not stopping. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. So I come across this verse, and there are a couple other verses very similar in, in uh, the New Testament. But I come across this verse one time, and I begin to think about it. You know, um, after you know, when you read through the Bible and you read through more and you read through more and you read through more, you're always going to see things you didn't see before. Sometimes in sermons, you hear a sermon, you hear the same sermon, which probably is not going to be exactly the same, but sermon from the same passage a year, two years, three years later, and you get something you didn't get before. Paul says this, uh, to write the same things um, to you indeed is not grievous, for, but for you to say. So writing the same things could mean one of two things. It could be that he wrote some kind of letter that's not included in Scripture. Or it simply could be when he was in Philippi, the things he preached and taught to them. Now I'm writing them to So repetition is a key to learning anything, especially the Bible. You're never going to get to a point where you can say, I've heard it all, I've read it all, I've learned it all. There's no way anybody's ever going to get that as long as we're here on earth. Um, Martin Luther, the uh, reformer Martin Luther back in uh, 1500s, his wife made the statement, I've read it all, I've heard it all, would to God I lived it. And so Paul says, look, I'm continuing these things for you. It's not grievous. It's safe. You need this. You need to continue to hear this. For no other reason, from a practical standpoint, as Christians, we can hear something and then later on hear it again. At that time, there's a different need in our life. There's something else we're going through, something else we're thinking about, some other, uh, maybe something else in Scripture that, that the light comes on and we understand something better in the context of when we see it taught again. So uh, Paul says it's not grievous. He said it's safe. He said uh, to write these things again. So repetition is definitely a key to learning Scripture. We see, um, we've already looked at this some in chapter 3, so we won't back up to a lot of it. But we see his example to us for victorious Christian living. We looked at how he learned from his past. We looked at how uh, he lived in the present. And then um, and to press on, to continue on, uh, of course, that's, that's future, but it's, you do it now. You keep pressing. But also, when you close out the chapter, let's look and see how he looks at the future. For our conversations in heaven. Now, the word conversation in that day not only meant the words you said, but the life you lived. And there's some places in the New Testament it means both. Sometimes it does mean words that you say. But our conversation, our life, our, our language, our conversation is in heaven. So eventually that's, we know that's where we're headed. We know that's the place one day we're going to be with our Savior. From whence also we look for the Savior 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So he looked forward to the future. He looked forward to the rapture. He looked forward to the Lord uh, giving a, a brand new body to him and to us. So he's a great example of victorious living. And when you read that whole chapter, um, it, it starts with that uh, when it talks about putting those things behind and it ends with looking things in the future. Chapter 4. Um, this is the only place, uh, we'll get to verse 4 in a moment, but look at verse um, 1 and 2. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. We don't know what the problem was, but apparently it's something that needs to be ironed out. Um, and then he says in verse 3, And I entreat thee also, true yoke, yoke fellow, help those women which labor with me in the gospel. You know, um, sometimes you'll see where people talk about Paul you know, put down women in, in his letters and all that stuff. Not at all. Paul, in different churches, there were women that were serving the Lord, and Paul commends them for that. Uh, in chapter 16 of Romans, he talks about a sister named Phoebe who was a servant who loved the Lord, and she apparently delivered one of Paul's letters. So Paul does not belittle women at all. He doesn't put them down in any way. It says, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, with other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So in chapter 4, uh, this very last chapter here, Paul has um, in it, as we get on, uh, we talked about joy being one of the themes of the, of the whole book. In verse 4 through 8, um, he, he tells us, he, we see uh, joy and rejoicing found there. Uh, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known to men. The Lord is at hand. And then he tells them, be careful for nothing. Don't be full of care. Don't be worried, anxious, fearful. Uh, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. One of the books I'm using in our study, uh, preparing for our study, is from a, a gentleman named Mark Trotter, who actually died a couple of years ago. Um, he Anyway, he, um, he has a book called uh, 52, it should be Weeks, very another typo, 52 Weeks of Pursuit. And he goes through each book of the Bible and breaks it down. And some of his material I've used, and I saw this quote, uh, joy is a choice we make because of right thinking. When you see rejoice there, the context of it, uh, of it has to do with prayer and our thought life. Uh, verse 6 talks about making our requests known unto God, praying about things that worry us or cause us anxiety or fear. And then verse 7 and 8, but and the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then he says, whatsoever things, we'll come back to verse 8 in a moment, actually. Um, Isaiah 26, 3 says, um, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. That's a companion verse there to verse number seven, or to verses 7 and 8. So uh, joy is a choice we make uh, because of right thinking. You see the rejoicing and you see prayer and thought going together. 4.13, everybody's probably memorized this one, but I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Jesus told his disciples in John 15 verse 5, he says the other side of that, for without me, you can do nothing. I can do all things with Christ. Without him, I can do nothing. So a uh, wonderful promise in chapter 4 and verse 13 of, uh, of Philippians. So let's look at tune up. And some of these verses we've looked at already to some uh, degree, and some of them maybe not as much, and there are a couple of these we haven't read. But uh, we looked at believers' perspective on life and death. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and die is gain. And he says, whether the Lord takes me home now or whether you know, he leaves me here to serve him longer and to help you, either way is a blessing. 129, we said, is a key uh, to growth personal and in the church. Verse 29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, salvation, eternal life, but also during the Christian life, suffer for his sake. So as believers in Christ, um, there is suffering that we go through. Paul told Timothy later on when he writes to him in 2 Timothy 3, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But he says... Um, it's, it's given on behalf, not only believing, believe on him, but to suffer. Now, we do very little suffering, really. We live in 21st century America. 
We still have some freedoms, and we, you know, we don't have, uh, we don't really have suffering. We do go through some kinds of suffering, but as far as persecution, we don't. Now, there's the suffering of, of daily living. There's suffering sometimes of, you know, uh, naming the name of Jesus, and, and others may, you know, react to that. But uh, Paul, the suffering he mentions has a lot to do with persecution, such as being in, j- in jail for the, you know, for the gospel. And then many of them that gave their lives for it. And so when you read in the book of Acts, the growth that came just about every time there's great growth in the church is because some kind of persecution just happened. Paul or some of the apostles had been thrown in prison or, you know, uh, other believers were being persecuted somewhere. And because of that, the, the church grew. Um, the old saying is very true. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And, you know, many that gave their, that give their life for Christ as a result, um, you know, there are many saved after that. A little more current history, maybe if you've ever, and if you've never read the book or seen the movie, um, there's a couple of movies out, The Life of Jim Elliott, who was back in the 50s, uh, early 60s, 50s, was a um, missionary to Ecuador, and uh, he and his team were trying to, um, you know, live among the people and get to know them, and they were martyred by the very ones that came to give the gospel. But some of the ones, after they were martyred, some of them were actually were saved, and they became believers, and they, you know, started church over there. So, uh, you know, persecution's horrible. When we hear about it happening, it's always sad to know someone goes through that kind of suffering and loses their life. But it doesn't happen in vain. God's going to use it for some good somewhere. And so often that's what happens uh, when suffering, and especially persecution, happens. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, I, I didn't go over it. I preached about this uh, a few weeks ago. In the second second message I had about um, the wells of salvation, and uh, I'll go ahead and read these verses. Though, wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And again, notice it doesn't say work for it; it says work it out. Work out what God has already worked in when you got saved, and so. There's God's part, He saves us, and then God's part and our part together is Christian growth. Work out what God has worked in. And of course, He's going to help you do that um, because uh, you belong to Him. We already looked at chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, where Paul Paul talked about uh, our glorified body we'll one day have. Then chapter 4, verse 19, another familiar verse you may have memorized at some time. And... uh, Sometimes when bills are due, you want to claim this verse, that's for sure. Chapter 4, verse 19, But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. When you go back, uh, for time's sake, we won't read it all tonight, but when you go back and read verse 14 down to verse 18, in fact, you see that name Epaphroditus again, um, and how he was a wonderful servant of the Lord. We see how that promise is made to them because they were so... Uh, giving in their missionary support for Paul. we got a few minutes. Let me go ahead and read that, actually. Verse 14. Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. Again, communicate doesn't always mean words. It can mean the way you live, and they communicated by giving. We see that in the next few verses. Verse 15. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Paul says, look, the money is great. Yes, it's wonderful, but I'm not desiring that. I want to see God bless you as a church. And Paul knew that God would do that because of their um, giving spirit, their giving attitude. Verse 18, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing unto God. And because of that, verse 19, but my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Very, uh, a truth is seen all through Scripture, especially in New Testament time. If you take care of the things that belong to the Lord, He will take care of the things in your life. And so He tells them because of that, because you took care of needs that I had for the ministry, God's going to bless you and He will supply your need according to His riches and glory and bless them. 
And so this church had a lot of good things going on, but they were a missionary church. They were mission-minded, and they wanted to help, help uh, in that. already said that. I don't know why I did that twice. Okay, Jesus in Philippians, like with Paul, others' letters, you see him talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that reference is because he's a risen Savior. He's risen from the dead, and Paul loves to use that term in almost every letter. He'll, he'll refer to him as the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, home address, um, verse, chapter 4, verse 19 is a good one to memorize too. But we didn't read over chapter 1, verse 6. Um, this actually, um, uh, back in the 80s, Steve Green uh, recorded a song that came from this, based on this verse. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see salvation in three tenses there. This very thing, he which hath begun, it began when you got saved. A good work in you. That's what God's doing throughout your life as a Christian. You're in the Christian life. We'll perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, until he comes back. And that's, that's our future of our salvation where we're delivered um, from, um, from this planet, from, from earth, and given a new body. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Let's stop there. Uh, see if there are any questions or any input on uh, Philippians tonight. Anybody? Very rich book. A lot of good things in Philippians. Okay, let's stand and close in prayer, Lord willing. We'll pick up at uh, Colossians next week. Another short four-chapter uh, book, but um, a lot of good stuff in there as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the time to meet tonight, and uh, we thank you for the time to open your word and study in the book of Philippians and see uh, this book about joy and rejoicing in the Christian life. What a pleasure to, to study and see this and how that joy, Paul always brought the focus of that joy back to the Savior, and he's the source of that joy. Your spirit is the source of that joy. And we thank you, Lord, for the words that he wrote to the Philippians. We thank you for their willingness to, to serve and their willingness to uh, take care of uh, missionary needs. And in turn, you, you turn around and bless them for that greatly. And uh, the life of these uh, others that we see that were servants, such as Timothy and Epaphroditus, and their willingness to serve. We thank you for their example. I pray, Lord, that you'll keep us safe as we leave from here tonight and uh, as we look forward to Sunday and worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.